This is London calling Columbia, New York. Now first, let's get in proper order the chronological developments of the day. At nine o'clock this morning, London time, it was announced that a two-hour ultimatum had been delivered to Germany, that at the end of that time, hostilities must cease or Germany and Britain would be at war. At 11.15, the Prime Minister spoke to the nation. He stated that no reply had been received to the ultimatum and that Britain and Germany were at war. Shortly after the Prime Minister's speech, the air raid sirens went off, and it wasn't a pleasant sound. We moved quietly and in orderly fashion down underground. The all clear came in just a little while. It seems that an unidentified plane had been seen approaching the coast. It was later found to be a friendly ship. Now, for the last few hours, I haven't had an opportunity to be up on the streets of London to see what is happening. I know that the House of Parliament is still in session. But I have heard one story concerning that air raid siren, and I think that story might interest you. It's told me by a friend of mine who was in Bond Street, and he said, when the air raid siren went off, one man began to run. He ran for about half a block. He looked around, saw that no one else was running, and stopped, with perhaps the typical English desire not to be conspicuous. Now, while I've been underground, Mr. Bill Henry of the editorial staff of the Los Angeles Times has been up looking at the streets and the people of London. And here is his report. London is at war, and London has had its first air raid signal. But it has been the news that has been thrilling rather than the actual happenings in the city. London seems to take this war in stride. After all, you know, this is the weekend. And in Britain, the weekend is taken very seriously so that the city is quite depopulated. A small group gathered before Buckingham Palace shortly before 11 o'clock, but there were a few more before the Waterloo Barracks where troops were drawn up in the yard. Little knots of people stood around radios on corners listening to the fateful words from Mr. Chamberlain as he spoke a few moments later. The first big thrill came a few minutes later when the intermittent blast from whistles announced the first air raid signal. Groups on the street looked unbelievingly at one another. And then, as policemen and air raid wardens sounded the alarm, started for the nearest shelter. There was no panic. There was no undue haste. In fact, I should say that there was distinct reluctance to leave the streets. Most of the Londoners were anxious to have a look at the show if, indeed, the raiders were coming over, as it developed later that they were not. Those who had good warning of the possibilities fished around in their little boxes for their gas masks, but they were in no hurry to put them on. I was in the Associated Press office when the signal came, and the newspaper men and operators right up to their ears in the business of sending Mr. Chamberlain's speech to American newspapers, were in no mood to drop their work and go to the sandbagged shelter in the basement. The power in their sending machines, however, was immediately cut off, so they walked downstairs with a lot of kidding and with anything but panic or fear in the atmosphere. Most of them, indeed, were wishing 
that they might have photographs taken of themselves in their gas masks. My taxi driver, who drove me to the studio after the all-clear signal had been sounded, told me what happened to him when the air raid signal came. Well, he said, I was in the cab driving down the street when I heard the whistles, so I pulled up right off. You know, driving around the streets, I've had a fine chance to see where the air raid shelters are located, and there's certainly enough of them. So I hopped out of my car, and where do you think I was? At the Waldorf. And I'd never been inside the place. A chap at the door was just closing it, and he says, Come on, my lad, up quickly. So I went in. My word, I've never been in a place before, and there I sat in a ballroom just like a blooming millionaire while the sirens were sounding. I'd say that that was just a fair sample of the way that London took the first day of war. That was Bill Henry's report of the streets and people of London. Now, as I told you a moment ago, the House of Commons is still in session. Sir Archibald Sinclair, leader of the liberal opposition, has said, I feel sure that at this grave moment when we have listened to the moving speech of the Prime Minister, we should all wish to pay him a tribute of sympathy. But we are also in a mood of determination and resolution. The deputy leader of the opposition referred to the atmosphere of anger and apprehension which reigned in the House yesterday. Today, he said, the atmosphere is so happily changed. Yet, underneath those two phases, the mood is the reality of our determination to see this thing through. Let me associate myself in full, he said, with the eloquent tribute on behalf of my friends and myself, which the deputy leader of the opposition paid to the Polish people and to the Polish parliament. Let me pay my tribute to the people of France who have for so long been making such great preparations for the struggle with which we are now faced. The atmosphere of this house, according to the evidence of the opposition leaders, has changed overnight. Mr. Greenwood said, Resentment, apprehension, and anger reigned over our proceedings last night, aroused by the fear that delays might end in national dishonor and sacrifice of the Polish people to German tyranny. Those feelings, I have reason to believe, were shared by large numbers of people outside, and from messages which have come to me this morning, what I said last night met with the approval of our people. This morning, we meet in an entirely different atmosphere, one of relief, one of composure, and one of resolution. The intolerable agony and suspense from which all of us have suffered is over. We now know the worst. The hated word war has been spoken by Britain in fulfillment of her pledged word and unbreakable intention to defend the liberties of Europe. And now let us bring you the latest news from Paris. This is London calling Paris. Go ahead, Paris. This is Morrow in London calling Paris. Go ahead, please, Paris. Hello, Paris. This is London calling Paris. Go ahead, please. While we're waiting for Paris, for just another few minutes, I'd like to tell you what Mr. Winston Churchill has just said in the House of Commons. 
He was received with general cheers, and he said, In this solemn hour, it is a consolation to recall and to dwell upon our repeated efforts for peace. All have been ill-starred, but all have been faithful and sincere, and this is of the highest moral value. And not only moral value, but practical value at the present time. Because of the wholehearted concurrence of scores of millions of men and women whose cooperation is indispensable and whose comradeship and brotherhood is indispensable. That is the only foundation on which the trials and tribulations of modern war can be encouraged and surmounted. This moral conviction alone affords that ever fresh resilience, that ever fresh resilience, which renews the strength and energies of peoples in long, doubtful, and dark days. Outside, the storms of war may blow, and the land may be lashed with the fury of its gales. But in our own hearts, this Sunday morning, there is peace. Our hands may be active, but our consciences are at rest. We must not underrate the gravity of the task which lies before us. Mr. Churchill said, this is no war of domination or imperialism or to shut any country out of the sunlight and the means of progress. It is a war fought in its inherent quality to establish upon immovable rocks the rights of the individual. And it is a war to establish and revive the stature of man. It may seem a paradox that a war undertaken in the name of liberty and right should require as the necessary part of its progress, the surrender for the time being of so many of our truly valued liberties and rights. In the last few days, the House of Commons has voted dozens of bills to confer on the executive the control of our traditional liberties. Those powers are not placed in hands which will abuse them or use them for party interests, but they will cherish and guard them. We must look forward to the day when those rights and liberties will be restored to us and we shall be able to share them with peoples to whom such blessings are unknown. And there spoke Winston Churchill, the man who has sat through so many fateful meetings of Parliament in that corner seat beside the gangway. Now, for a moment, let us see again if we can contact Paris. This is London calling Paris. Go ahead, Paris. This is London, calling Paris. Go ahead, Paris. It seems that for the moment, it has become impossible to reach Paris due to technical reasons. We shall hope to bring you at a later time the day's news from Paris. And now I just have time to give you a bit of what Mr. Lloyd George, that white-haired Welshman and statesman of Britain, has said. He said that he was one of those who had from time to time challenged the government's handling of foreign affairs. But this was a different matter. The government were now confronted with the latest and not the least of a series of acts of brigandage by a very formidable military power, which, if they were left unchallenged, would undermine the whole foundations of civilization. He was only one out of millions of people in this country who would back any government that was in power in seeing this struggle through. He had been through this sort of thing before, and there was only one word he wanted to say about that. They had then very bad moments, 
Moments when brave men were rather nervous and doubtful. But the nation was firm right through from beginning to end. By that means we went right through to the end after four and a half terrible years. But we won a victory for right. And in the end, we will do it again. And those were the comments of Mr. Lloyd George. We shall hope to bring you later news from London today. We return you now to America. This is New York, an Associated Press Bulletin, London. King George VI held a meeting of his Privy Council at 11.15 a.m., which is 6.45 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, 7.45 Daylight Time today. An Associated Press Bulletin, Copenhagen. The Norwegian Admiralty today radioed all Norwegian ships at present en route to Europe's warring countries to proceed to the nearest Norwegian or neutral port. Associated Press Bulletin, Montreal. The Canadian press announced that censors were placed today in all cable offices in Montreal soon after British Prime Minister Chamberlain proclaimed Great Britain at war with Germany. And the Bulletin, Berlin. With a declaration of war by France against Germany seeming inevitable at 5 p.m. Paris time, noon Eastern Daylight Time, the French embassy staff in Berlin today was prepared to leave the city at a moment's notice. It's understood that Sweden will take over French interests in Germany. Now, an hour and a half after the British Prime Minister announced that Great Britain was at war with Germany, there was an announcement over the German radio station, the reading of a memorandum of the German government which was handed, handed to the British ambassador saying, in the last part, that the German government has to reject the British and French ultimatums, making the British government responsible for the encirclement policy and for not exercising a moderating influence on the Poles. This, of course, is what the German radio station said. After this... The appeal of German Chancellor Adolf Hitler to the German army to do their duty was read with the assurance that also the West Wall will protect Germany from attacks by France and England. The Polish radio station in Paris at 1 p.m., which was 8 in the morning Eastern Daylight Time, broadcast this to Germany. Hello, Germany. Hello, Germany. England has declared war on you. Then the radio spokesman added... There is only one thing left for me, and that is that I hope with what strength and power I have to forward the cause for which we sacrificed so much.